I think if you put all of that into the soup and, and stir it around, those are all the reasons that, that we're seeing the spike in, in, in homicides here in Michigan. When I first became a police officer, if you'd take a kid home and, you know, the parent would immediately, didn't even, lots of times, ask the question why you brought them. They were like, you're in trouble, get in your room. We're now in a situation where Facebook is open to drug cartels and human traffickers, foreign dictators terrorist networks like the Taliban, which has access to uh, Facebook. You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There were 660 homicides committed in Michigan in 2020. That's up from 487 in 2019. That's a rate of 35.5%, an increase not seen in the state since 1980, and it's actually higher than the national increase of 29.4%, which is a rate the country hasn't seen since the FBI began keeping track of national crime levels in 1960. Andy Arena, former head of the Detroit FBI, he now heads up the Detroit Crime Commission, and he was on with Paul W. Smith. And it is a far more complex story than just saying, Oh, yeah, crime spiked, homicide spiked, must be the pandemic, people acting squirrely. We already know they're aggressive drivers on the roads, aggressive on airplanes, aggressive everywhere. But there's a lot more to the story, and I I depend on you, Andy, to give us your professional view. Well, Paul, you're exactly right. It's a very complex issue, and you know, there's no one silver bullet. There's no one reason uh, we're seeing this spike in violent crime and homicides across the country, and obviously here in Michigan, and there's no really one silver bullet reason or, or way to, 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 to deal with this. So it is complex. It's something we have to look at, um, which is hard in our society, right? We're so, we're so um, you, know, you know, we're along the spectrum. We're, we're either to the right or we're either to the left, and that's how we look at things. And it's, it's really hard to really sit down and take a, a hard look at these things. But, yeah, it, you know, the, it is the pandemic, pandemic one reason. We've been locked up. Uh, we've been in our houses. We're not allowed to go out. That is that that is that has caused a lot of angst with people. But you know, we see across our society, there's there's a lot of anger out there, uh, political, socioeconomic, you name it. Right? Uh, people are really polarized. So there 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 is that. You know, that's certainly another another reason. There's a downturn in law enforcement. You know, law enforcement has been under attack the last couple of years, uh, last year in particular, and there are less cops out there. Um, you know, and that's and that's before that and Andy, there are fewer cops out there, and that's before they get defunded. Exactly, exactly. You know, there has been a trend down the last few years, uh, Paul W. In, in law enforcement across the country. You look at it, particularly in Metro Detroit, it's hard for departments to hire cops. It's even harder today. And you're exactly right. That's before the, the that's before the whole discussion of defunding and. And, uh, it, you know, that, that's that has really affected the morale of law enforcement. So I think if you put all of that into the soup and, and stir it around, uh, those are all the reasons that, that we're seeing the spike in, in homicides here in Michigan. That soup is a stew that has a bitter taste and one that we don't want to see continue uh, in the study. Uh, we learned that there are fewer police officers in Michigan uh, ben, they use a benchmark that before 9-1-1, before 9-11, uh, the terrorist attacks, we had 22,000 officers in Michigan. Now there are about 18,000. And early last year, we're learning and told 
that officers were actually given instructions to avoid making stops because of COVID. So police wrote far fewer traffic citations last year over 2019. And uh, when I say far fewer, in, in, in 2020, police wrote 822,000 tickets statewide, down from 1.3 million in 2019. That affects budgets. That affects a lot of things. A lot of criminal activity is is busted on a regular traffic stop because of what they find when they call that car in, that license plate. And if you're not doing that as much, then you don't have as good a chance of uh, nipping some of these uh, criminals in the bud before they do more criminal activity, I would think. Well, that, that's exactly right. You know, that's the, the broken window theory of law enforcement. You know, you go to the lowest common denominator and you stop the crime there. Um, I was speaking to a law enforcement uh, executive recently, and they were telling me that they had 22 openings in their department. Uh, it's kind of a smaller department. And they had two qualified candidates. Two. That was it. And those candidates, they were fighting with other departments to hire those candidates. So that kind of shows you anecdotally the, the state of law enforcement. And then, as you said, the, the, the officers that are out there on the street, it's, it's just, you know, Paul W., it's, it's a great time to be retired law enforcement. It's a very, very difficult job right now. So, uh, you know, those that are out there, are they being handcuffed? Are they being allowed to do the job? Uh, most departments do not have felony uh, uh, traffic uh, pursuits anymore. They just they call, they call those off because of liability issues. And you're exactly right. They're, with COVID, they're not pulling over uh people for traffic stops because of the interaction with with, with uh, the citizens they just don't want to they, they don't want to spread the the uh the covid or you know they just don't want to have to be, be dealing with those with, with potential issues of dealing with those people so um it's, it's not the same job as it once was and there's not enough people out there doing it it was a bad week PR-wise for Facebook starting Sunday evening with former high-ranking Facebook employee Francis Haugen accusing the social media giant of putting profits before safety on 60 Minutes and testifying in front of Congress about the damaging effect the platform has on its users, especially teenage girls. First Amendment attorney Herschel Fink broke down the allegations with Kevin Dietz. She does have uh, an interesting background, rather an activist background. She's been with... Uh, uh, a number of social media companies and platforms uh, for very brief times. And even even with Facebook and Instagram, she she has I think she's been there or was there less than a year. But she definitely has collected some very convincing evidence and documents that she leaked to first to The Wall Street Journal, which has uh, been publishing a lot of this uh, in, in recent uh, weeks and days. Um, and that it, it is credible because she does have uh, a lot of documentary evidence that she's taken away from there. Um, what we're seeing as a result of this is is really rare bipartisan support for change and accountability um, uh, on the part of these uh, all-powerful social media platforms and probably uh, about time. Uh, it remains to be seen if uh, this actually results in any meaningful change in legislation, particularly as we're entering into an election year and uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, of debate over this and, and other issues. But what we saw was rather I 
opening uh, leaks evidence, and uh, it's uh, it it sheds light really on the astounding power of platforms like uh, Facebook to control numerous aspects of American life. Uh, and certainly uh, the focus yesterday was on the effect on um, particularly teenage girls and uh, a rather toxic effect. My own concern as a lawyer whose focus is on freedom of speech and expression is the control that these platforms have on public debate. And um, uh, but uh, I, I, we're, we're now in a situation where Facebook is open to drug car- cartels and human traffickers, foreign dictators, terrorist networks like uh, the Taliban, which has access to uh, Facebook. And at the same time that uh, these platforms and particularly uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram and all uh, can ban uh, a president of the United States uh, and others whose views that uh, these platforms label as fake or misleading or dangerous. And uh, there's really no accountability. And that's really what I think uh, lawmakers are starting to realize. That's why you've got this rather unprecedented support, uh, apparent support for some kind of change in legislation and uh, on the part of uh, both uh, both political parties. School districts and educators are growing more concerned by a number of social media challenges that are mostly being carried out on TikTok. Some of the more troubling trends encourage teenagers to slap a teacher, touch another person inappropriately without their consent, or destroy school property while capturing it on camera. Six students in the Warren Consolidated School District are facing criminal charges with another 20 or so facing disciplinary action after engaging in some of these challenges. Oakland County Sheriff Mike Bouchard weighs in on these trends with Chris Renwick. Yeah, and it goes to, again, the environment of of lax enforcement of not just by some police agencies, but also by the community in general. Uh, be it the courts or prosecutors in different settings or or whatnot, to hold people accountable for their behavior, to, you know, allow certain things to happen allows it to escalate or get worse, right? So, I mean, we've seen that on so many levels of policing. If you ignore behavior and you don't hold people accountable for illegal, improper behavior, you're going to get more of it. And, you know, it's terrible for a teacher to be put in a position of of being physically assaulted um, and not having direct, immediate accountability. Right. Well, here's the other part, too, is is this could certainly lead to uh, much more severe ramifications and consequences than just a suspension at school, right, or, or something within the classroom or education setting. This is something that could be, you know, a, a, a criminal matter where, you know, uh, charges are pressed or, you know, there's some legal ramifications to this. What do we, what are we, should we be telling our kids or grandkids to I mean, you know, kids are going to do what they're going to do. They don't always make the greatest decisions. I, you know, heaven knows I didn't. But with that being said, what should we be telling them to dissuade them from something like this? Well, again, there's there seems to have been a shift over time. I mean, when I first became a police officer, if you'd take a kid home and, you know, the parent would immediately didn't even lots of times ask the question why you brought them. They were like, you're in trouble. Get in your room. Um, <laughs> right. 
you know, and, and now it's like, why did you stop my kid? My kid doesn't do any wrong. My kid, you know, without even hearing the facts, it's, it's flipped 180 degrees. And so, you know, parents need to set very clear boundaries on their children and the behavior and hold them accountable at home. So when they get outside the home, they understand that rules and behavior have consequences. 20 months after the COVID-19 pandemic started, there are some glimmers of hope that we may be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne gives us a dose of cautious optimism on the Paul W. Smith show. There are a couple of very important developments that are going to take us to the end of the pandemic. Vaccines available to young children and Merck's antiviral pill. The pill is currently being considered for clearance by regulators. Former FDA chief Dr. Scott Gottlieb and Brown University dean of School of Public Health Dr. Ashish Jha have both pointed to those two developments developments along with the push to have COVID home tests in the hands of more people in the coming months as the things that will help us wrap up this pandemic. Dr. Gottlieb, however, does say that he thinks the Delta variant won't pass until Thanksgiving. He believes the COVID Delta variant will have moved through the country at that point. Now, the development of an oral drug from Merck will allow vaccinated people to have a treatment for a breakthrough case, and Pfizer's also working on an antiviral pill. This medication known as molnupiravir, was shown in a phase three trial to reduce the risk of hospitalization or death by about 50%. And that's for people who had a moderate case of COVID. It works by inhibiting the replication of the virus inside the body. And unlike Rundisavir, Merck's drug can be taken by mouth. If approved by the FDA, it could be the first pill to treat COVID. Pfizer asking the U.S. government to authorize its COVID vaccine for kids ages 5 through 11. And if regulators give the go-ahead to that, it'll reduce uh, the kids' dose in a reduced dose. That will begin in a matter of weeks. Currently, Paul, about 76% of eligible Americans, those 12 and up, have received at least one COVID vaccine dose. And COVID, though, continues to kill an average of more than 1,700 Americans every single day. They'll do it for Podsui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.